It is good to be with you this morning, worshiping the one true God together. This morning we're going to continue in our sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel. And so if you have a Bible, please open it up and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. As we move into this chapter of our study, what we're going to find in this chapter and the next two, um, the, the failures of King And so chapter 13 is the first of these three failures. And as we hear from God's word, and look at the kingship of Saul, I pray that the Holy Spirit this morning would help apply God's word to our own lives, that it's not just a story that happened thousands of years ago, but as the Apostle Paul reminds us, that everything that was written then is for our benefit, it's for our good, it's for our instruction. And so now please follow along as I read from God's word. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offerings. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself 
and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept the, what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with, with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to Ophrah, the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company toward, turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zibium toward, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make for themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the land, in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan his son had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went on out the pass of Michmash. Hear the word of the Lord. A lot going on in this chapter, and much of the descriptions found here sound extremely bleak. And it was a moment, it seems, early on in Saul's kingship where he was so to speak, pressed to the limit. Stresses pressed in upon him in a way that caused him to act. And we're going to look at this chapter and break down what transpired in Saul's life that led to the first of three failures. To begin with, just right off the bat, if you have a different translation that you're reading out of this morning, I'm reading out of the ESV, there should be a footnote in all of our Bibles that the description that we're given in verses 1 and 2 um, are a little ambiguous in the Hebrew. And so there, there may be some of our Bibles that say Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years, 42 years, sorry, over Israel. And you could look to the New Testament in Acts chapter 13 and verify that he did reign for 40 years. And so that may be one way to look at this. Um, the confusion, though, is there because the Hebrew uh, reads more like this. Saul was one year old when he became king, and he reigned two years over Israel. And if you have the ESV, the, the way that they've translated it, uh, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And so as commentators look at that, they assume that this may be plausible, that after being appointed or anointed as king, he, he lived for a year and then was established as a king. And then the events that we find uh, happen after two years into his reign as king. 
Uh, I'm not going to be dogmatic. There's, I don't have a definitive uh, understanding exactly of what was meant here, but we know that as his kingship began, we are given more details, that he rallied troops around him. 3,000 was his military ban at this point. 2,000 men were with him, and 1,000 were with his son, Jonathan. So we're introduced to Jonathan in this chapter, where before in 1 Samuel, we did not even know that Saul had a son. And Jonathan will play an important role in all that transpires in the kingdom of Israel during this time. So we've got 3,000 troops, and then we're also quickly told that what is facing them is the Philistine domination of the Israelites. And if you take the chapter as a whole, we don't get the details till the end of the chapter, but the setting that, that none of them have weapons except for Saul and Jonathan is, is expressing a lot to us, that even their farm tools had to go to the Philistines to be sharpened. They had to pay to have their agricultural day-to-day tools sharpened. The Philistines had their foot up upon them in many ways, and this is just one way to, to emphasize the reality of what the, the Israelites were experiencing during this time of, of Saul's reign. The locations, it's important to see Michmash and Gibeah are where Saul and Jonathan are located, and this would have been central locations to, to see virtually in all directions around them. And with this arrangement, the king sent the rest of the people home, we're told back to their homes to await a call to mobilize, if that is needed. And then in verse 3, we see Jonathan's faithful track become introduced to us, or his track record starts at this point, his, his faithfulness. If you have jumped ahead in your reading of 1 Samuel, Saul's son Jonathan, throughout God's word, is really given to us as one who is found faithful in his dealings. And where I want us to connect some dots here, and so it's going to take a little bit if you have not been with us or even just to get our brains working again of where we've been in 1 Samuel, some in important events happened in 1 Samuel chapter 10 that actually shed a lot of light on what's happening here. So we're, we're told here in our chapter that Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. Now, back in chapter 10, Saul is given three signs from God. Samuel tells him, these signs will happen to you for you to know without a shadow of a doubt that God has called you to be king over his people. And we read in chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, the third sign being described by Samuel. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison, garrison of the Philistines. So just stop right here. You see throughout the chapters that Geba and uh, Gibeah are used synonymously, kind of interchangeably. So we are assuming that this is the same garrison, this setup of the Philistines, right in the midst of Israel's land, and it should not be so. And as we read Samuel's words to Saul, he says, and there, as soon as... You come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord, this is in chapter 10, will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And Samuel continues, Now when these signs meet you, when this comes about in your life, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Now, we didn't spend a lot of time looking at it then, but a lot of commentators believe that Saul's first charge, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you, was to actually look at, notice this garrison that should not be there and take it down. Possibly his first charge as leader over Israel was to defeat that garrison, that outpost of the Philistines. And the question is, what did he do about that? And in the text, he did nothing about it. He just kind of continued on his way and ended up back in his hometown. But we read in chapter 13, Jonathan did do something about it. Jonathan was the one who came in and actually defeated this outpost, this garrison of the Philistines. Now, after that, in chapter 10, Samuel goes on to give him a little bit more instructions that will be important to our chapter. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. That's really important to our passage this morning. We don't know how long it's been since Samuel gave these words to Saul and what transpires in 1 Samuel chapter 13. But after Jonathan overtakes, defeats this garrison of the Philistines, something is alerted in Saul. He remembers that he is to go to Gilgal. When, when that happens, go to Gilgal and wait. Wait seven days. Samuel's very specific exactly what he is to do. Until I come to you, and I will show you what you shall do. So Saul, in verse 4, calls the people out to Gilgal. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, not Jonathan. It's, it's, this is one of those, was Saul taking credit, or was this Jonathan gladly saying, this is God's kingdom, and Saul is the, the leader of the kingdom, and so we're going to just make it known to the people that Saul and his army has defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So he begins to rally the troops and it is here where the circumstances pressing against him as king begin to intensify greatly. So verse 5, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. And we're given a description of just how big this army is, how powerful this army is. And in one sense, this taking over or defeating of, of the garrison of the Philistines was really just poking the hornet's nest, and it's about to really come out in full force. So Saul was in Michmash, and then he leaves to go to Gilgal. Once he remembers what Samuel had told him, when he leaves, it's the Philistines that now mount up and encamp in Michmash. And the people of Israel, we are told, are terrified. Now, just a little bit of perspective. The Philistines had ten times the amount of chariots to the fighters at this point. If you remember, 
Saul had about 3,000, 2,000 in his, and Jonathan had 1,000, together 3,000. Just in the chariots alone, they were outnumbered by 10 times, or 10 to 3, or however you say that mathematically. And then we're given a description of 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore. This is just to, to really help us understand what they're up against and the pressure that King Saul must have been experiencing at this point. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people were hard pressed, what did they do? Did they rally around their king? The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some of them even floated across the Jordan just to get to a safe place. Those who did follow Saul found themselves trembling. Now, if you listened to this passage read aloud, and as I was reading God's word, you were maybe resonating at some points with Saul, some points with Jonathan, and maybe, maybe even Samuel as the one who, who calls out sin. I, I just want to remind us that where we connect most with is typically just the people of Israel fleeing. That's really mostly what we identify with as we work through books of the Old Testament. We realize that we're, we're not better than them by any means. When, when things are forced upon us in such a difficult setting like this, most of us, our flight mechanisms kick in and we're gone. Just a little side note. Imagine, if you will, the people during these days that are passing by as Saul is waiting, looking around with the enemy on their doorstep, and you can only imagine them saying, well, okay, isn't, isn't our king supposed to do something? Like, we're waiting for him to move. Why isn't he acting? And they are desperate for some action at this point. Verse 8 tells us, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. I want us to just note, at this moment in time, Saul is actually doing something. The waiting is actually doing something. At this point, he is heading in the right direction. The voice of Samuel has spoken on behalf of God, and Samuel I'm sorry, Saul is waiting. And I think it's good for us to kind of just slow down during this time and put ourselves in his shoes, maybe in the people's shoes, and imagine the difficulty, the anxiety of waiting these seven days. Remember, there's a threefold stress upon Saul and the people and the people of Israel. But thinking just primarily through the light of, of King Saul, this situation of waiting would have been extremely difficult. As he is waiting, this is, this is the threefold pressure that's, that's being placed upon him. The first is the Philistines have mustered their countless army. The troops look like the sand on the seashore. Secondly, as he's waiting, we're told that the people are scattering. Those whom are supposed to stay are continually leaving they're scattering and then thirdly and probably primarily the prophet is nowhere to be found the one who is supposed to come 
and make the offerings for him and direct him is nowhere to be found. In our own lives, waiting can bring crushing anxiety. So maybe the people are asking a lot of questions. When is our king going to actually act? Saul, you can just imagine, maybe going around the camp saying, Have you seen Samuel? Any, any sign of Samuel coming? As the days slowly go by and the tension is mounting more and more. I think a good question for us to, to think about this morning. Where, where are you in your life waiting for God to show up in a moment in your life that feels like it is of utmost importance? Maybe there's a struggle or addiction to sin. Or maybe there is a relationship with a family member that you have that is, that is needing resolve, is needing reconciliation. Maybe in your finances, you are at the breaking point. Maybe it's with your physical health or one that you love. You are at the brink. And if something does not happen soon, you don't know how you're going to make it. That anxiety, that pressing of these seven days was upon Saul. What is he to do? And then we see Saul's waiting turn into a massive failure. Samuel is supposed to come. He is the prophet. He is God's mouthpiece. Saul knows that he cannot enter into an act of war without the blessing of God. And for that blessing to be given, sacrifices had to be offered, and all of that was to be constituted by the prophet of the Lord. Samuel is nowhere to be found. So in verse 9, Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, thinking about the, the primary offerings in the Old Testament, the ones that stand out probably that resonate most is the guilt offering. We have the, the burnt offering and the peace offering. Here, Saul is going to give or make the burnt offering and the peace offering. This plan to offer a burnt offering also known as the offering of ascension, really is an interesting one that this is what he actually does when he's not supposed to. So just thinking for a moment about what that represented, the burnt offering or the ascension offering is where an animal is completely consumed upon the, the fire. It is consumed and, it, and it, it, in a sense, goes up to heaven. This whole animal ascends to heaven in the smoke. And it's symbolic of our entire consecration. Not, not just some of it, but the whole animal is burned and offered unto the Lord. And if you just think for a moment about this whole consecration of our lives unto God, there is much irony here. This, this offering is saying, God, I am all yours. Everything I have is yours. This is the burnt offering unto the Lord. And this is the one that Saul decides to make. He does not get to the peace offering. The peace offering was one where once the offering was made, the, the worshiper would actually partake of the offering, and it is that communion with God, sharing the meal with the one who has redeemed you and called you. But Saul only gets to the burnt offering, and then we find that Samuel comes back on the scene. 
Just as he finishes offering the burnt offering, Samuel shows up. As we read through scripture, the scriptures can and do often accurately expose our sin. We can see ourselves in the sin that Saul commits here. So fill the weight of this situation, this episode in his life. To obey God for Saul was an an extraordinary thing to ask considering the circumstances. The circumstances were were crazy against Saul in this situation. And so to, to ask for obedience would be extraordinary. It would require him to trust God completely against every instinct that he has, every evidence that is being presented to himself, and all that he's experiencing at that moment. The Philistines are coming in massive numbers. The Israelites, whom he's supposed to be leading, are fleeing, and everyone is terrified And there's no sight of Samuel anywhere. Behold, Samuel came as soon as he finished. And what we read from our passage is that Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. So in a sense, it doesn't seem that that Saul at this point fully grasps the the offense, the greatness of his offense, offense, the grievousness of his sin. He went out possibly with relief in actually finally seeing Samuel come in. And then we hear Samuel's response in verse 11. What have you done? If you're like me, when you hear that response, it should, well, at least for me, it drove me right back to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had disobeyed God, partaken of the the fruit that was forbidden, and God comes to them. And it's that same type of, What have you done? And Saul is quick to respond. When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come against, will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, interesting expression, and offered the burnt offering. In a sense, he's saying, I had to do it, Samuel. You you don't understand. Once you understand all the details and all that was happening, I had to do it. The Philistines are pressing in. My people are scattering. And you were nowhere to be found. I needed the Lord's favor, so I forced myself. And the question is, did he have to? Did he have to do it? I hope we can all answer, no, he did not have to do it. In our passage, we see that Samuel did show up. It may have been the 11th hour, but we're given the information that during the seventh day, Saul takes it upon himself. It could have been at the last hours of that day, but Saul determines Samuel's nowhere to be found. I've got to do this. And he offers the burnt offering, and Samuel shows up. How easy it is to make excuses instead of honestly dealing with what God would have us deal with. In this setting, just like Adam did in the garden, there is blame shifting happening immediately from Saul. 
blame shifting away from him. If you just understood the circumstances, what was supposed to happen that didn't happen, that justifies the end. Why I did what I did. The failure that is pervasive to the human heart is accepting our own responsibility for sin. What is Saul doing? He's saying, look, this isn't on me. In one sense, Samuel, it's, it's your fault. You, you, in a sense, made me do this. You put me, you pushed me back into a corner where I had no other options. You forced me to break God's commandment. There's kind of this um, theme that maybe many of us experience in our own lives. Everybody's problem but mine. There, there's not the responsibility, the ownership of what has transpired in our own lives. I heard an expression that seems fitting here, and it's fingers love to point outward. And I think that's so true. When we are pushed up against the wall and maybe our reputation or the reality of our sin is exposed, we are so quick to just point outward and move the guilt away from us. And it has to be some circumstance or some other person that, that made me do it. With Saul here, there is no repentance. What is the proper response to a sin like this or sin in our own lives? And at the bare bones, what we don't see happening in Saul's life, there should be no excuse making. There should be honest confession of sin. In Saul's life, this is kind of the, the banner that would be over this episode if he were to write it himself. This was justifiable disobedience. With all the facts laid bare in the court of law, he would have said, you've got to understand. After this is presented, you're going to see that this is justifiable. Why I did what I did. And we need to be reminded of this again and again. Circumstances, no matter how severe. None of us would look at this scene and say this was not severe. We would all acknowledge this. No matter how severe or how terrifying, the circumstance never justifies disobedience to the Lord. Circumstances, no matter how severe, are never justifiable circumstances to the Lord. Maybe, as you're hearing this story, you totally relate with Saul and you too have found yourself waiting until the very last moment. And you're going, man, just like Saul, I really tried. I put forth a lot of effort. If you would have understood all that was pressing in on me, you would understand why I responded the way I responded. Maybe it's with sexual sin in your life. Maybe it's with a workplace dynamic that is boiling up. You've waited a long time, but you, you just you had to interject. Maybe it's a conflict with another person that you love. You're seeking, you're hoping to seek reconciliation. You're moving that way, but they just aren't quite seeing their sin clearly enough. And so you, you have to let them know just how offended you have been by their actions. You, you, have, to, you have to rip into them up one side and down the other just so you've just so they fully comprehend how bad their offense is against you. Really, this is a way of us saying, I have to control, I have to take matters into my own hands, 
and I have to be king over my life. A rebuttal would be for those who are being pressed into a corner. Are we just to wait and watch everything around us fall apart? And the answer is, a lot of times, and in Saul's life, yes, you are to wait. Obedience to God in those circumstances would have required Saul to trust God against every instinct, against all the evidence, against every aspect of his experience at that moment. A call to trust God. We see this is how God operates in many times and in many places. God brings his people to the brink. Will you trust me? When Abraham is called to sacrifice his son Isaac at the last moment, Moses and the Israelites on the banks of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army in hot pursuit behind them, their feet are now in the water before them. Where are they to go? They are to wait and trust. So in one sense, you could say one of the lessons that are, that's gleaned from this passage is that we are to obey God when everything goes wrong. Even when everything begins to fall apart. Obedience to God, what is also very clear in this passage and in our life's testimony, obedience to God is not easy. And it is never to be an alternative Every act of obedience to God, please hear me. Think about your own life in the midst of temptation. Every act of obedience to God is extraordinary. Do we do it in our own strength? By no means. We were reminded this morning in adult Sunday school of good works that Christians are called to be about, to do. The mark of our lives is to walk in a manner that would please God doing good works that were, that were ordained before the foundation of the earth for us to do. And none of that is to be done outside of the empowering work of the Holy Spirit upon us, in us, through us. And so every act of obedience is difficult. We're not sugarcoating the Christian life. This is hard stuff that should drive us to God in complete dependence. If we are ever to overcome temptation and to not fall the way that Saul falls in this passage, it should prompt us to cry out for God, for God's help. Where does the Bible tell, tell us our strength comes from? It, 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 always, it always takes place in weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, such a helpful passage written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is God's response to Saul in our story? 
his response through the mouthpiece of Samuel is condemnation. It is judgment against what Saul thought he needed to do. So in verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Some may hear that, and I wonder when you hear that kind of response to a sin like Saul committed, how you, how you grapple with that, how you interpret that. I, I wonder what you make of what Saul did here, and I wonder what you make of what God's reaction to Saul was. So because of the result of what Saul did in breaking God's commandment, God pronounces a swift end to his kingdom. He will for sure go on to reign for many years, but God has already decided that another will take his place to whom his favor will be given. Now, a question, do you think that that response was over the top in regards to Saul's sin? This one sin that Saul committed was, was the response too, too much. Rem remember, this is what happened. Saul broke the commandment of God concerning worship. And what we see here is the severity of God put on display. John Wesley wrote little notes in, his, in one of his Bibles as he studied through it. And on this passage it was found that he wrote this note. He asked a question. Is there such a thing as a little sin? I think that's a really good question for all of us to, to grapple with this morning. And he wrote, in it, he, wrote, uh, he wrote the answer to this question a little bit further down on the page. Only if there is such a thing as a little God. Is there such a thing as a little sin? Only if there is such a thing as a little God. The answer very clearly is that there is no such thing as a little sin. As we have been reminded in corporate singing this morning of how great our God is. He is no little God. James 2.10 tells us this. This helps us understand just how serious our sin is. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point... One, one little sin in our, in our book has become guilty of all of it. For one little sin, according to our eyes, Jesus must die and shed his blood in atonement. What we see here is that sin is grievous and it is serious. And the, the, the response of God is just and right in what happens to Saul through the mouth of Samuel. Samuel's response first is that you have been foolish. It's good for us to think about foolishness, the fool, as we read in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 14, 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
And you would go, well, this, how does that connect with, with Saul here? I mean, Saul acknowledged that there was a God. He needed God's favor, his blessing, before they go and try to take, take back, you know, take over the Philistines. But I want you to hear the words again. The fool says in his heart. So this is not an intellectual exercise. This is in someone's heart. They're saying there is no God. And I want to submit to you this morning by Saul not waiting for Samuel to come and taking it upon himself to offer the burnt offering, at that moment, there's a reason why Samuel says, you have been foolish, because he was not trusting God fully at that moment. And that is the epitome of foolishness. A fool says in his heart, there is no God, meaning I must figure things out. I must accomplish what's before me in my own strength of my own doing because I've waited long enough and nothing has happened from the sources that it's supposed to come from. And I also want you to think about, so we're, we're touching on the foolishness of Saul and how that plays out in our, our own life. Do you trust God fully? And then I also want you to see this in Saul's life. It is in light of God's promises and not the circumstances that the utter foolishness of Saul's disobedience must be seen. So according to the naked eye, you see the circumstance and you go, well, you know, that was a really hard situation. So I can understand why he did what he did. So that's looking at things in light of circumstance. But if you look in light of what Samuel says from God to Saul, in light of God's promises, if you had obeyed, your kingdom would have gone on forever. You would have been the one leading the people, blessed by me. That, that's the promise that wasn't at that moment in Saul's life in the forefront, able to, to direct his path. He was led by circumstance, not by promise. And where did it lead? Complete and utter failure. As believers in Christ, we from God's word have promises in abundance that we are to cling to and be motivated by in this life. And when our eyes are moved away from promise to circumstance, we see things begin to just unravel in our lives. And when we are led by circumstance, it is defined from scripture that this is folly. This is foolishness. And so maybe even this morning, we plead with God to give us eyes to see clearly his promises and our hearts and lives would be captivated by the, the one who is leading us and what he has promised to us rather than looking around in our lives and being motivated or pushed by circumstance. We see in our passage in verse 14 a prophecy of a coming king. So Samuel's still addressing Saul here. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord 
commanded you. The expression, a man after God's own heart, this was really helpful in my study. I think we all have heard that in kind of the Christian, Christianese or Christian jargon. You think of King David, a man after God's own heart. Man, there must have been something really special with David. And as you look at the, the Hebrew and, and really thinking about how this is actually translated, literally it says, the Lord has sought for himself a man according to his own heart, according to God's own heart, a man, a man in the likeness of God. So the, the, the focus moves from this great man, David, who is to come, a man after God's own heart, and it moves back to a God-centeredness in all things. Not a man-centered in making much of who David is, but it's making much of who God is and what God is doing. This is about the place this man has in God's heart rather than about the place God has in the man's heart. So God is choosing a man according to his own purpose and his own will. I want you to see the, the contrast here. Saul was chosen as the people's king. They wanted a king like all the other nations. God will raise up a man according to his own heart. As we wrap up this chapter before us, this passage, I just want to note the end description of what, what is now kind of the setting that, that Saul and Jonathan find themselves in is, is glim at best. It is, it is desperate. And I think it's important for us to just hear Saul's justifiable actions, so to speak. You know, he justified his disobedience did not solve anything. See, many of us, are dece uh, we've, we fall into this deception of sin thinking that that path will actually lead to the best outcome, flourishing. When God's word tells us contrary, we start to believe in a lie and think, okay, it looks like this is going to lead towards what I really need. And Saul's justifiable response did not actually solve a thing. So just briefly, um, this dire situation, you've kind of got three components here of just how bad it is. So we, we read of the, the raiders coming out of the Philistine camp in three companies. And number one, there's no blacksmith to be found. So only Saul and Jonathan have suitable weapons. You imagine maybe seeing in a movie or reading a book, you've got peasants rising up with their, their agricultural, agricultural tools in order to fight against uh, another kingdom or an oppressor. And really, that, that's what we have here. There are no spears and swords in the other members of, of Saul's army. So that is extremely bleak. We have a measly 600 men that remain with Saul at this point. And then lastly, the worst liability was that Saul didn't have the guidance of God represented in Samuel's presence. We read that Samuel leaves. He departs from that place. And so you have this man left who justified his disobedience, left in a much dire situation. And we sympathize with, with Paul because we too find that to obey God fully, 
to trust God fully with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is really beyond us. And the circumstances that we find ourselves maybe at home or at work, whatever the setting may be, we see the circumstances and we find that we fail miserably at obeying God, trusting God fully. And what this whole chapter is reiterating again and again is that the people, God's people, we, God's people, need an obedient king. We need a king who will lead us well. And so this prophecy that's given to Saul, told by Samuel that God is going to choose a man after his own heart, we see unfold in God's redemptive plan most clearly first with King David. But we read about King David's life and we realize that he was a sinner in need of a savior. And so there is still a longing. While that was a glimpse, a shadow, we're still looking for the substance. And so we continue to look down the the plan of redemption and we get to the Lord Jesus Christ, the obedient king. Hear from Hebrews chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Christ, in light of the promises set before him, perfectly obeyed the Father. For the joy that was set before him, Christ endured temptation. He endured the betrayal of one of his closest friends. He experienced the disciples scattering from him. Think about Saul watching the people scatter, and he's beginning to be more anxious. Jesus waits Jesus trusts. He is presented in an unjust trial. He trusts. He waits. He perfectly obeys the Father. Philippians chapter 2, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul explains in Romans, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We rejoice as sinners who have fallen short just as Saul has disobeyed. We look to the one who perfectly obeyed. And theologians would call this Christ's um, uh, active obedience. All that Christ did We need to understand he was the perfect spotless lamb, perfect in every way, obeying the father. And where we fall short in keeping God's law, we look to one who perfectly kept God's law. This this is so hope filled 
for sinners and rebels like us, where those around us maybe resonate with Saul and his failure and find themselves left in despair, there is one that all are called to look to, the perfect, obedient king who not only lived a perfect life, but died the death that we deserve to die. He was the one who was our substitute. He stood in our place, and all who look to him, repent of their sins, believe in him, receive him by faith, experience salvation. And so we cast ourselves upon Jesus in faith, and we have comfort of knowing that whereas our sin leaves us eternally alienated from God and rightly subject of his wrath, Christ's active obedience in this life, in his life, and his sacrificial atonement in death reconcile us both to embrace God as our Father and then to live in a manner that pleases him. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. And Father, as we are gathered before you, the maker of heaven and earth, whose chosen dwelling place is with the broken and contrite, to confess that we have sinned in thought and word and deed is right for us to do this morning. We have not loved you with all of our heart and soul, and we have not loved you with all of our mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have miserably failed to obey you. In your mercy, deepen our sorrow for the wrong that we have done and the good that we have left undone so that we this day hate our sin with a holy hatred. But please, Father, do not leave us in our sorrow. With you, O Lord, we are reminded that there is forgiveness found in Christ our obedient King. And in your mercy, we plead with you this morning that you would restore the joy of our salvation so that we may love you with a holy love. Bring much honor and glory to your name. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.